I'm going to be preaching today from a very familiar passage of Scripture found in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse number 14. 2 Chronicles chapter 7 and verse number 14. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn there at this time, and we're going to uh, read a uh, familiar portion of Scripture. We'll actually begin reading in verse number 11. The setting of this passage was uh, Solomon's temple dedication. Solomon has built what is at that time the uh, best temple of the biblical era, and it was a building that had taken over seven years to construct, and if we had tried to recreate that temple in today's uh, economy, it would have uh, cost in the billions of dollars. It was lined with gold and precious stones and was a, an absolutely magnificent building. The building has been completed, and they have gathered together. They're offering sacrifices. They're having a grand opening service, if you will, and Solomon has dedicated this temple to the Lord with a prayer. And we can read that dedicatory prayer in uh, chapters uh, 6 in the first part of number 7. And after Solomon has dedicated this temple, that particular day he goes home and goes to bed and God visits with him the night that he dedicated the temple. And that's where we will commence to read in verse number 11 of Second Chronicles. Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house, and all that came into Solomon's heart to make in the house of the Lord and in his own house, he prosperously effected. And the Lord appeared to Solomon by night, and said to him, I have heard thy prayer and have chosen this place to myself for an house of sacrifice. If I shut up heaven that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. And let's receive God's word with an amen. I'm going to preach for a few moments from this passage, a church in revival for a world in crisis. A church in revival for a world in crisis. Uh, obviously, uh, we are all working through the current COVID-19 crisis in our own way, in our own set of dynamics. The entire world is affected, some three billion people around the globe are in some sort of lockdown as I preach this today. And so all of us are, are, are experiencing a drastic uh, break in our routine. And so as I read through the scriptures about 
other people that experience crises, the passages of the Bible that I used to read in passing and didn't think a whole lot about it, now they take on a brand new meaning. And the Bible, for me anyway, has become more real in the last number of days than it has ever been at any point in my life. And so here, God is speaking to Solomon uh, regarding the importance of his people making a very serious commitment to pray and to worship in the temple. God is giving Solomon an admonition of the importance of the people of God preserving a life of holiness and righteousness. But I want to point out to your attention here that God makes a connection between the condition of his people, of the church, if you will, and the condition of the land. When things are right at church, society is impacted in a positive way. But when things are off at church, and when the church is not where it should be or what it should be, it has a negative impact upon the land. And so as we work our way through this present crisis, I believe that this passage of scripture gives us some direction how to respond. And it also gives us a perspective of the crisis that we need to have. Two things that I want to point out to us this morning is number one, our country and our world is in a spiritual crisis. We are in a time when, when, when we're living in a nation that has by and large forgotten God. We are in a time in America when all forms of immorality and perversion are championed as acceptable and alternate lifestyles. We're in a time when prayer has been banned from our public schools, when our government as a whole has forsaken the righteous moors upon which it was founded. No longer can we truly say that the United States is a Christian nation. But we are just one nation amongst many nations in the world that have by and large forgotten God and do not align themselves with biblical values. We're in an era when society flaunts its sin. To use a biblical phrase, the society we're in declare their sin like Sodom and Gomorrah openly flaunting their perversion. But in the midst of all of that, we have experienced, at least ways in Western society, an era of unprecedented prosperity. We're in a time when, in recent history, we have had more money than we've ever had. We've had more job security than any point in human history. The economy until recent days had historic low unemployment, we were all doing pretty well. But in the midst of that prosperity, let's be real honest about it, the church as a whole has not been where it should be. 
we have become somewhat lukewarm. We have, in some cases, found ourselves identifying with the church of Laodicea in chapter 3 of Revelation, where God said to them, you're rich and you are increased with goods, but there's one problem, you are lukewarm. We have been in a society where sports stadiums are filled to overflowing while the houses of worship are only three quarters full on Sunday morning. A time where people can spend a lot of money pursuing hobbies and recreation, but the average churchgoer in America contributes $17 a week in tithes and offerings. Our priorities as a nation spiritually have been off. It's been a lukewarm church, and there have been watered-down pulpits as ministers focus more on preaching a gospel of appeasement and a gospel that tickles people's ears, and it's created a spiritual crisis as carnality has went rampant in our pews, and that even applies to many of us in the apostolic movement today. And I do think there is a connection between the overall lax spiritual condition of the church and the natural crises that we are experiencing in the world today. Right now, we are in a natural crisis where a pandemic is sweeping the globe. Over 103,000 people as of yesterday have uh, contracted the COVID-19 virus and 1,668 people have passed away as a result of this virus as of yesterday in the United States. Churches everywhere have closed their doors and are live streaming services. Our economy has, has been shutting down all around us. And so we are in a crisis of unprecedented proportions. But I did not come to this pulpit this morning to preach a message of darkness and gloom. But I come here today with a word of hope telling you that in the midst of a crisis, I sense that there is a stirring going on in the church. In this time of crisis, there is a great spiritual awakening. The church is getting woke. Something is starting to turn on in the hearts of God's people. And I want to tell you what this world needs in a time of crisis. It needs a church that is in revival. And I believe we're going to have revival, don't you? I want to take a closer examination of the text that we have read this morning. Let's look back at verse number 13 of chapter 7, 2 Chronicles. God said, if I shut up heaven. Now notice here who is in charge of the crises. It is God. If I shut heaven. In other words, there, there is no rain, there's going to be a drought. Or if I command locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence or disease among my people. And so here God is saying that when drought comes, when disease sweeps across the country, or if there is economic calamity in the country, 
He said, I want you to know that I am in charge of it. I think it is important for us to reaffirm a theological fact from the word of God, and that is God and God alone is sovereign. While governments seem like they are controlling things or pretend to be, governments really don't control the outcome of the kinds of situations that we are in. But I believe the Bible teaches that God is in control. He is a sovereign God. Satan does his work in the earth, but we understand from a full perspective of the word of God that Satan is really just a ferocious lion, but he's on a leash. He is a lion on a leash, and I know whose hand holds the other end of the leash. Satan can't do anything that God doesn't let him do. In fact, one place God said, I have created the waster that destroys, and I have created the smith that blows on the coals. So even when the bad stuff is coming down all around us, it's important for us as the people of God to be able to lift up our eyes above the present distress and understand that there is a God in heaven who controls the outcome of the situation. Now, why does God allow drought, famine, or disease to come on the land? Well, I don't know that I can give a full and comprehensive answer to that, but I do know that at times in the Bible, God let things come on a society as judgment for their sin. Other times, God would send pestilence on the land to wake people up to their spiritual condition so that they would turn their hearts back to him. Now, here's the thing about the sovereignty of God. Preaching like I am today about God being in control of all of the present circumstances, it, uh, it, it immediately brings the question that if God's in control of this, then why? Why would God let this happen? I just don't believe that. I just don't believe God's in control of this. I don't believe that God has sent this current crisis. Well, here's the problem with the sovereignty of God. God does things, and he doesn't always tell us why he does it. And if we're not careful, we as finite people with a very limited perspective and understanding will try to pass judgment on God as to why he does something. Or if we acknowledge God's sovereignty, we start feeling like we have to make excuses or explain away why God does or why he allows the things that he does. I don't think we need to do that. I think we need to loose ourselves from feeling like we need to explain God. But here is the hope that I have here in Second Chronicles. God said, I'll send the drought. I will send the disease. I will send the locusts, which 
signified for them an economic collapse. God says, I do all that. But I like the fact that there is a verse 14 that follows verse number 13. Verse number 14, God said, if my people, which are called by my name, someone say, that's me. If you've been water baptized in Jesus' name, this is your scripture. If you are Holy Ghost filled, speaking in tongues, this is your scripture. If my people, which are called by my name. So here's what God is in essence saying, I'm sending some stuff that is bad, but at the same time I'm sending stuff that's bad, I've got a people. And if my people will wake up and do what my people are supposed to do, then they can pray that I will lift what I have sent. God said, I'm going to give it to you, but I'm going to give you the power to pray that I take it away. I'm here to preach that what the world needs in a time of crisis is a church in revival. I believe a revived church in the greater Memphis area can make all the difference in the world in the outcome of this crisis. A church in revival for a world that is in crisis. God said, if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray, seek my face, turn from the wicked ways, and I'll hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. So a few observations that I want to pull out of this scripture today. Number one, there is life after this. This is not the end of the world. This is a temporary crisis that we in the church are going to rise above. I'm here to tell you there is coming healing and there is coming life after this. And life after this is going to be an abundant life. But I want you to notice here there are four specific actions that God charges his people to take in a time of crisis. And I think we need to look at these actions and we need to implement each one of them. First of all, he said, if my people which are called by my name will humble themselves. Everyone say humble. Now, the word humble means simply to lower yourself. Uh, and, and to be humble is... Is, is more than something you just do, it's something you are. It's an attitude, an attitude of humility. And the opposite of humility is self-sufficiency or arrogance. We all know people, and perhaps we've been this person in the past, that goes about life with just the attitude that I got this under control. When we have a smug feeling that I don't need anybody. I am a self-made man or I'm a self-made woman. I've got all that I need and I have the power within me to overcome anything. When we feel that attitude of self-sufficiency, it's, it's pride. We have a lot of people in, in the world that say when you're in trouble, just look within yourself 
if you can get in touch with your inner being, you'll be able to find the answers to work through your problems. Well, those that are looking inward to find answers are deluded and deceived. You don't need to look inward when you're in trouble. You need to look upward. The answer to man's problems is not within man. It's in God. And to humble yourself means that, first of all, you've got to shed all pretense of artificial spirituality. You've got to quit acting like you got it all together when you stand before God. Humility calls for being real with God. Humility means that you stand before God and you say, now God, I understand I don't have all the answers. God, I understand that unless your grace gets involved, my life is in a mess. Humility is where we get before the Lord and we say, I need you. I need your salvation and I need your help. I'm desperately needing you. When we seek God, we've got to come in a posture of humility. Now, as I have followed the media's narrative over the last number of days, there's been quite a bit of discussion about churches that have closed their doors and are live streaming the services only. And that's what we've chosen to do, just to comply with government requests. However, there have been some exceptional circumstances where churches are allowed to uh, continue to operate in as much as they give food or supplies to the needy. And I have listened and I have caught a common narrative about church from the media. And the narrative, the underlying message is that the primary purpose of the church is to help needy people. The church, in the eyes of many people in society, has become a glorified food bank, a glorified clothing closet, and a glorified uh, welfare system for the disaffected. It is a place for those needy people to go gather together. Some people believe the church primarily exists to help those that are disfortunate. But not one time in hearing discussion about the church have I ever heard anyone from the media indicate we need the church because it is a soul-saving salvation place. It is a place that ministers to the eternal needs of mankind. I want to tell you, I believe our church is an essential service. We are not here to help people with their electric bill, although we have done that. We are not here to feed the hungry, although at times we do that. Our purpose is not to clothe the naked, although at times we do that. But the primary purpose of this church is to minister to the destitute souls of mankind who will be lost and undone without the gospel. 
I'm here to tell you a humble man has no problem saying, God, I need you today more than I have ever needed you before. God, I need you to intervene in my home. I'm afraid right now. And if you don't help me, I don't know what the future is going to hold. How about it? Let's shed our pride and let's reach up to the Lord with humility. I wish you'd just reach your hand up right where you're at right now and ask for the Lord's presence to fill your home or your place of worship. God, I'm asking you to do a work. We humble ourselves before you, Lord. Hallelujah. So the first thing the church has got to do is we've got to get humble. We've got to have an attitude and a spirit of humility. But then God said that prayer should follow humility. If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray. This is a time when all of us need to be praying every day. Now let me just say something about prayer. I understand that we can pray anywhere, anytime. I get that. You're riding in an elevator out in public somewhere, you can whisper a little prayer under your breath and say, I love you, Jesus. I get the fact that we can pray while we're commuting to work. We can sit on the back porch with a cup of coffee and say a few prayers. And that's all good. That has its place. But those kind of prayers should not take the place of a dedicated prayer time. A time when all you are doing is praying. A time where your prayers are not competing with your cell phone. Your prayers are not inhibited by a coffee cup. And your prayers are not distracted by a devotional journal. There is a time where people need to get down on their knees or on their face and say, God, I am here to seek your face. And I'm here to tell you what we need to do. We need to be praying that God would lift this crisis, that God would send revival, that God would save souls, that God put a protection around our families and around our church congregation. And if we have a church that begins to pray, we will see God begin to move and intervene. We need prayer. My people which are called by my name will humble themselves and pray. And then he goes on to say, after you pray, to seek my face. Now many times in the Bible we we see the expression in one form or another about seeking the face of God. Now, I used to wonder when I was young, what does it mean to seek the face of God? Because God's invisible. No man can see God in his true form. The only time people truly saw God was when they looked at Jesus because he was the express image of the invisible God, but the closest we can get to seeing God is to read about Jesus. But to see God in his spirit essence today, it's impossible. So when God says to seek my face, what is he talking about? Well, let's just use this analogy in the natural. 
Some of you have probably made friends online. Maybe you have had a boyfriend or a girlfriend or you've struck up some other kind of friendship with somebody through Instagram or through text message. And maybe you've had a friendship where you have corresponded for some time digitally. Maybe you've talked on the phone, but you have never been in the presence of that person with whom you have had a friendship. And I'm sure many of you know what it's like to have formed opinions of people. Maybe it's a colleague that works in a different office in a different state, and you've had to communicate back and forth, and you feel like you know this person, but yet you've never seen him. But when you meet that person face-to-face, you understand in a face-to-face meeting, there are dynamics about that person that you never would have picked up on through social media or text messages or even telephone calls. Something about looking into the face of a person reveals nuances of character and personality that cannot be communicated any other way. So when the Bible talks about seeking the face of God, it's talking about having this close, intimate encounter with his presence. It is important for us to seek the character of God, to be in the presence of God. To seek his face also carries the idea of wanting God to look at you and to smile at you. Now, I'm sure everyone here that is a parent, at some point your child has looked at you and said, hey, Dad, hey, Mom, watch me. As they are about to perform a trick or some stunt. Look, watch me, are you looking? Why does our children, why do they ask us to watch? When they say, look at me, what are they really wanting? What they're wanting is your approval. They are wanting you to smile and say, good job, well done. So when the Bible tells us to seek the face of God, It's really saying bring yourself into alignment with his gaze and live your life in such a way that when he looks at you, he smiles and says, that's my boy, that's my girl. And he smiles and says, a job well done. I want God to smile when he looks at me. And one way to know that God's smiling on you is when you can feel the presence of God. Live your life in such a way that God's smiling and you're trying to bring yourself in alignment with his character. I'm talking about how to break through some pestilence and break through some crisis right here. When a church gets busy about being humble and about praying and about bringing their church and their life and their way of doing things into alignment with the word of God, then it brings the smile of God and it brings the manifest presence of the Lord. But last of all, 
God says here, my people need to turn from their wicked ways. I'm talking to you about a church in revival. A church in revival has got to get a serious, uh, have, a, have a serious return to a life of holiness and righteousness. Now, a couple of observations here about turning from wicked ways. God is speaking to the people of God. He's talking to the church. He's not saying to sinners, you turn from your wicked ways. He's saying to the people that are called by his name, you guys, the praisers, the churchgoers, you guys need to turn from your wicked ways. Now notice that word ways right there. That is different from a wicked action. A wicked action or a sinful deed might be something that just happens on occasion. It's a one-time event. But a wicked way is referring to a course of action or a habitual lifestyle or a life direction. And so, and honestly, what God is saying here is that there are people that are called by his name that their life direction, their overall habits and daily routines have pushed him out and are more focused on the things of man than they are the things of God. And let's just take a look at ourselves today. We need to look at our hearts and look at our habits. We need to look at the overall focus of our life and ask ourselves: are we guilty of falling into wicked ways? When we were able to have church here in the sanctuary, did you miss a lot of Sundays? Were you too tired on Wednesday night to be here for Bible study? Did you find yourself going for days at a time without devotion? It's not that you were trying to be a bad person. It's not that you were hell-bent on going out and committing sin. But maybe if you take a very honest look at yourself, you realize that your priorities have been on other things. You've spent more time in front of a video game then you have an altar. You have spent more time on the golf course than in the sanctuary. You've spent more time worrying about money than you have thinking about the kingdom of God. And when you look at the overall course of your life, you may have to honestly come to the conclusion that God has not been the center of it. Well, I want to stand here before you today and I'm calling all of God's people back to a time of consecration. I'm calling us for a time of renewed commitment. I'm calling you to put every idol that has crowded God out of your life. Let's get rid of those idols. Let's get our focus back on the Lord. If there are private sins, personal sins in your life that other people may not even be aware of. This is a time we need to get rid of it. 
and we need to have a consecration a re re restoration of holiness and here's what the bible says he said if we will do this if god's church will do what god's church is supposed to do if the church will find itself in a state of revival god said i will hear from heaven and i will forgive their sin and i will heal their land i believe if something will wake up in christian life church it's going to have a ricochet effect across our community this is a time for revival this is a time for us to double down and devote ourselves to the work of god like never before I want to invite you wherever you're sitting or standing. Why don't you lift your hands right now and let's have an altar call. Why don't you turn your living room, turn your kitchen into an altar right now. Let the place where you are become a sanctuary and let's touch the Lord together. God, I pray for spiritual awakening. I pray for revival. I pray that you would stir your people, Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Well, pray over your family. Pray over your church. Pray for the Lord to come heal our land. Let's seek the Lord together. Let's spend a few moments seeking the Lord together.